Well, good evening, everyone. My name is Robin Archer. I'm the director of the Ralph Miliband program here at the London School of Economics, and it's really my pleasure to introduce our speaker today, Professor Pat Thane. Um, Pat was a student at Oxford University here at the LSE as well, and she's taught at a number of places, teaching mostly contemporary history and social history. She's taught at Goldsmiths College, Sussex University, and here in London at the Institute um, for Historical Research. And she's now a Professor of Contemporary British History at King's College London. She's also a Fellow of the uh, British Academy, and I think you were Vice President of the Royal Historical Society, and I believe you're Honorary President of the Social History Society, so an, an eminent and accomplished historian. And, uh, you know, she's thought long and hard about 20th century British history, and especially, I think, about questions about social policy and the welfare state, also about gender relations and the history of the labour movement. I'm not going to go through all her multiple publications, but she's certainly got some important books, um, The Foundations of the Welfare State, Old Age in English History, and most recently, Divided Kingdom. I think that's most recently. Is that, that was last September. Last September. That is recent. Um, <laughs> So tonight she's going to be talking about, um, you know, really the major crisis in social care that affects particularly the elderly um, and drawing on her rich historical knowledge to do so. She's going to talk for about 50 minutes or so and then there'll be plenty of time for questions and discussion. But before she does, can I ask you to join me in welcoming our speaker, Professor Pat Thane. That does seem to be working. Right, thank you very much, Robin, for inviting me. It's nice to be back at LSE, where I did my PhD many years ago. I was supervised then by Richard Titmus and Brian Abel Smith, and it was they who got me interested in the history of old age, because they persuaded me to do my thesis on the history of old age pensions policy. They were advising the Labour Party on pensions policy at the time, and they wanted to know how pensions had got to the state that they were in by then. And since then, I've continued to be interested in the history of old age, hence today, and also more generally in the relationship between history and contemporary policy and the ways in which the study of history can help us to understand how current policy issues came about and perhaps give some ideas about ways of thinking about resolving them. So today I'm going to be talking almost entirely about the history of social care. I don't have any magic solutions to how to resolve the present problems. Um, so, oh, hang on, I need to... How do I play with the, the overhead? Sorry. <laughs> ah, right. Good. Yeah, sorry, I was. <laughs> There's a fairly boring series of overheads which are just summarising <clears throat> what I'll be saying. Um, so, what do we know about the history of social care? I want to start by pointing out it's not the case, as is often thought, that in the past very few people lived to be old. 
So we're now faced with a totally unprecedented need to care for older people. Many more people than ever before do now live to later ages, but the change is less dramatic than sometimes thought. In all known past societies, even in ancient Rome, a significant number of people have lived to be perceived as old. More often women than men, because women have long tended to outlive men, as we still do in Britain and many other countries. But in the 18th century in England, about 10% of the population was aged 60 and above. It is fewer than now, but still a substantial number. And also, of course, in the poorer societies of the past, people were often physically old and frail at earlier ages than they are now. Indeed, everyday references to care for older people in the past, like many comparisons between now and then, tend to be afflicted by golden ageism. The belief that things are always better in the past, always getting worse in the present. And it's often said that in the past, families lived with and cared for older relatives, whereas now they just dump them in care homes. And similar comparisons made between Britain and other faraway countries in Asia and Africa, where again, family care for older people is said to be more devoted than it is here. And both these comparisons are highly questionable. It's true that in Great Britain, there's no expectation of older people more or less <coughs> automatically living with their adult children, as there is, for example, in Japan. This has never been so in Northwest Europe over many hundreds of years. And the evidence is rather that older people have long preferred to keep their independence for as long as possible, often moving to live with relatives when they became too frail to manage alone, which in the past might be for a short time because until improvements in medicine in the mid-20th century, they often didn't survive long in a frail condition but died quite quickly from infection. But if in the past and now older people haven't routinely lived with their families, it doesn't mean they've been more neglected by their families than in cultures where the generations lived together. There have been important changes in intergenerational relationships in Britain in the relatively recent past. Until World War II, over many centuries, a high proportion of people never married and had no children. Even in the 1931 census, 15% of women, 9% of men uh, were never married and, as far as we know, didn't have partners or children. For people who did have children, until the early 20th century, high death rates of children and young people meant many older people had no surviving children. This is true, for example, of one-third of all women aged 60 in the 18th century. And also for many centuries before industrialization, young people and after, young people migrated away in search of work. And communication with their elders might then be difficult when transport was poor or expensive and they weren't highly literate. In the 19th and 20th century, hundreds of thousands of mainly younger people emigrated far away to Australia, Canada and other places. And they often kept in touch with older relatives, 
sent money, but it was hard to provide care at such a distance at that time. There's some long-distance migrants did migrate back as their, as their relatives got older and looked up to look after them. So until quite recently, many older people had no close relatives available to care for them. And it's often suggested that older people are more neglected now because the younger generation are so busy, move around so much, women work, and no longer have time for family care. But women and men worked hard, traveled, and had stressed lives throughout history. The difference now is it's possible to live at a distance from relatives, but to keep in touch using modern transport and technology. Also, since the mid-20th century, marriage rates have increased <clears throat> and death rates at early ages declined. So most ageing adults have at least one surviving adult child. Most people have close relatives within easy travelling distance. And the evidence is that they keep in touch and provide care when needed. <clears throat> and although the generations living together has never been the norm in Britain, this doesn't mean there's no tradition of intergenerational care. The evidence rather is that when older and younger generations did survive and lived reasonably close, they, did, they supported each other whenever they could and when it was needed. And it was always quite common for some close relatives where they survived to live close to older people, for adult children to help ageing parents living nearby. And as I'll say later, for ageing parents to help them in return. And to live separately but in close contact was often a conscious choice for as long as the older person could manage alone, partly because they preferred to keep their independence, but also because they were aware of the possible tensions when families shared a home. There were folk tales, even in medieval Europe, warning older people of the dangers of moving in with their children, who might increasingly marginalise and neglect them, especially if the older person handed over their property. So it's important... Sorry, I've lost the... It's important not to romanticise extended family living and assume it always entails cosy, caring relationships. The most alarming evidence about this comes from Japan, where, as I've said, it's normal for older people to live with their adult children, but there's evidence of high levels of abuse of elders within the family. One national survey claimed that one in two family carers had subjected frail older relatives to abuse. And this survey isn't alone. But I don't know of comparable evidence for other countries, <clears throat> for this country or for anywhere else in Europe. A private care company told the House of Lords Committee on Social Care in 2009 that there was evidence that in cases of elder abuse, two-thirds of incidents are perpetrated by relatives most often the individual's adult child or spouse, but they didn't give the source of the evidence. But when we know how much domestic violence <coughs> there is in this country and the extent of child abuse, we shouldn't be surprised that elder abuse can occur within families. 
But of course, generations can and often do live contentedly together or have good relationships with one another. I'm just, assume, I'm just warning against assuming that it was a norm in the past that has still declined, or that when generations live together, it's always supportive and contented. I'm also stressing there's a great deal of historical evidence of strong intergenerational support within families, even when they didn't live together. And this may well have grown more, not less strong, over the past century, especially since World War II, because as I've said, though families are smaller, most elder people now have at least one surviving child, most people are better off, and family members can more easily afford to help one another. Another problem until the early part of the 20th century was that adult children might be too poor to give their adult parents much help, along with supporting themselves and their children. And they might live in such overcrowded conditions that sharing a home was impossible. Families um, caring for uh, a disabled relative and older people living independently had more support from social services from 1948 onwards, as I'll be saying later. <clears throat> but the evidence seems quite strong that in contemporary Britain, families, mainly female family members, <coughs> care for their elders at least as much now as in the past, probably more so, even at considerable emotional, physical, as well as financial cost to themselves, and at least as much or more as in countries with traditions of co-residence. And pressures on families to care have grown recently as services have dwindled. It's true that more older people live alone in recent decades than in the past, which is partly because there are more older people as society has aged, and more can afford their own homes. Indeed, more people in all age groups live alone, but they aren't necessarily cut off from close contact with friends and family. Though some older people sadly are isolated and lonely, and indeed they often have been in the past, but what happened to people who didn't have family care in the past? Better off elder people in Britain, whether or not they had or lived with families, would generally be cared for by servants at all times up to the Second World War. <clears throat> Untrained, low-paid female carers, rather like now, though generally living in, providing long-term care, not rushing in for a short time each day, this became less common after World War II as living, southern keeping declined. For poorer people without families since the 17th century, the only form of publicly funded care was the poor law, of generally minimal and locally variable quality. And by the 19th century, for most the only resort, usually the last resort when they couldn't manage alone, was the poor law workhouse providing grim, basic care, if care's the right word, <clears throat> generally with untrained staff, often female workhouse inmates. The poor law had a legal obligation to prevent death from starvation and neglect among its local residents. 
but no more than that, and care could be minimal and conditions bleak. Most older workhouse inhabitants lacked close relatives. They were more often men than women, since men were less likely to maintain close family and friendship ties if they were unmarried, widowed, or divorced. From the late 19th century, free health care was available to everyone in poor or hospitals, but again, it was basic, stigmatised, and of <clears throat> locally variable quality. Residential care was also available in charitable institutions, sometimes fee-paying, sometimes free, where conditions might be better, but they weren't available everywhere, and we don't know what proportion of older people used them before World War II. From 1929, all poor law services were managed by local authorities, whereas previously they'd been separately administered. Poor law hospitals were integrated with local medical services. And this revealed the large numbers of older and disabled long-stay patients in poor law hospitals, often in very miserable conditions, receiving little medical care, with no access to rehabilitation, which might enable them to leave, or staying in hospital because they lacked a home or support in the community. Discovery in this situation in the mid-1930s led Dr. Marjorie Warren at the West Middlesex Hospital to experiment successfully with rehabilitation and improvement of the hospital environment raising morale and activity and enabling many older patients to leave hospital. And this led to the very gradual growth of the specialism of geriatric medicine in Britain and reduced the number of numbers of bed blockers as they were and are known, older people trapped in hospital because they've nowhere else to go. During World War II, surveys revealed extensive hidden need among older people living in the community with minimal or no health or social care. This led to some improvements, but their needs didn't receive high priority among the extensive wartime proposals for social reform after the war. After the war, the Labour Government's National Assistance Act in 1948 abolished the poor law and required local authorities for the first time to provide residential accommodation for older and disabled people deemed in need of care and attention not otherwise available to them and to improve community services. Local authorities gradually provided more services including social workers and home helps, to people in their own homes. And the authorities are also empowered to subsidise and supervise voluntary and private profit-making residential and community provision. Voluntary action continued to be important in the post-war welfare state. For example, the Women's Voluntary Service providing meals on wheels for older and disabled people at home a service which long continued but has recently declined due to cuts to local authority budgets. And for 1948, it was the first time a clear division between health care services provided by the National Health Service 
also founded in 1948, and social care services. An important difference between them was that NHS care was provided free at the point of delivery, while local authority social care, residential or in the community, was paid for on a means-tested basis. And local authorities lost control of hospitals to the National Health Service. There was no attempt at integration of health and social services, and they operated within different administrative boundaries Though older and disabled people often needed both simultaneously, as they still do. The means test for social services was less onerous than it later became, because at this time, few people using such services owned expensive homes or other capital, or had substantial savings. But this lack of integration of health and social care was criticised from the very beginning, in 1948, the leaders of the newly formed British Geriatric Society produced a report for the BMA called The Care and Treatment of the Elderly and Infirm. This summarised the dismal state of health and social care for people over 60 and the foreseeable costs of continued neglect as their numbers grew, as they clearly were likely to do. They recommended coordinated medical and rehabilitation services based in general hospitals and linked with community services. But geriatric care was in its infancy was of low status and the report had very little impact on policy. The new NHS offered no guidelines on the treatment of older people. Many hospitals refused to accept chronically ill older people and preferred younger to older patients. Some teaching hospitals indeed unofficially banned over 65s. They were perhaps concerned about the risk of bed blocking due to the absence of suitable community care if they left hospital. Also, there was widespread tacit scepticism about whether adequate health and social care for older and disabled people was cost-effective, given their expected short remaining lifespans. And there was serious discrimination against older people in the health and other services, which unfortunately hasn't gone away, as recent surveys have shown, and despite repeated official criticisms. The Gilbo report on the National Health Service published in 1956, <clears throat> drawn research by Richard Titmus and Brian Abel Smith to comment on the poor health and community services for older people still. Local social services were too often withheld from older people living with their families on the grounds that families could and should provide, despite evidence that families were already doing their best, and could do very little more without support. Because if relatives, elder relatives were very frail, for example, suffering from dementia, that required specialist help, and families needed help. 
A major reason why local social services were limited and charged for in 1948 was that in the difficult post-war economic situation, the Labour government couldn't afford wholly to fulfil its ambitions for a universal welfare state. Services which everybody could use, including the health service and the education system, were free. Those needed only by more restricted populations, often regarded as lower status, including older, disabled or very poor people, were provided by the voluntary sector where possible, were means tested and had low priority for expansion. Local services for children improved much faster than those for older and disabled people. Again, there was a certain discrimination against older and disabled people. Conservative governments of 1951 were no more active in improving support for these groups, and the provision of community social care was uneven across the country, depending on the priorities and the funds of local authorities. And criticism of the system persisted. In the late 1950s, the sociologist Peter Townsend, who was based here at LSE, surveyed residential homes, and his work was published in 1962 as the last refuge. And this severely criticised conditions in all too many of them. Among other things, it showed how many former workhouses were still in use as local authority care homes. As you can see on the screen, former workhouses provided the largest number of residential beds. And conditions, as he described, were still exceedingly basic, little improved since 1948. And the widely publicized criticisms by Townsend and others led to improvements in care homes and the beginnings of local authority provision of sheltered housing, providing support for independent living. Also from 1962, the Conservatives, followed by the post-1964 Labour government, encouraged local authority provision of community rather than residential care, including social work support and day centres providing meals and recreation to enable more older people to remain in their own or their families' homes for as long as possible. Because research showed that this is what older people wanted and that well-supported independent living kept people healthy and active longer. And conveniently for government, it was estimated to cost less than improved residential care. But again, community care never received enough funding and health and social services remain disconnected to the great disadvantage of many people in need. In 1968, the Seabone Committee on Personal Social Services commented on the slow development of community care and recommended more specialist social workers and means of assessing local needs and planning to meet them. The report stated, services for old people in their own homes will not be adequately developed 
unless greater attention is paid to supporting the families who in turn support them. But again, there was little obvious immediate response. The Local Authority Social Services Act of 1970 established a single social services department in each local authority following CBO, emphasizing the need for a coordinated and comprehensive approach to social care to support families to detect need and encourage people to seek help when they needed it. And these new departments became responsible for residential accommodation, for home helps, meals and recreation services, for all of which charges could be made. They registered independent residential homes. But these services continued to be very unevenly provided across the country and underfunded. And criticism continued of the lack of integration of local authority social and NHS health services to support older people at home. A succession of measures in the 1970s were designed to assist older and disabled people to remain in the community, which was partly impelled by increasing activism by disabled people who rightly felt they'd be marginalised in the post-1945 welfare reforms. The Chronically Sick and Disabled Act of 1971 required all local authorities to register disabled people of all ages and publicise services. It encouraged but didn't require or adequately fund expanded community-based services like home helps and day centres and benefits were improved for disabled people. In 1975, Invalid Care Allowance was introduced for people of working age, acting as carers to older and disabled people. It wasn't payable to married women caring, caring for close relatives, because this was assumed to be their natural duty. This was reversed in 1986, following a judgment by the European Court of Justice when there was appeal against it. People above state pension age were also debarred from the allowance, although they were the majority of carers, and this carried on. So the Act, though supporting some carers, withheld support from the two largest groups of carers, married women and older people, and the allowances were quite low. Both local government and the health service were reorganised in 1973 and 1974, respectively, into larger tiered units. One stated aim of this change was closer integration of preventive and aftercare services between the health service and local authorities. It was recognised, at least in principle, that good preventive services would keep people out of health care and good community services enabled people to leave health care faster. But again, practice was slow to follow the recommendations. NHS services were run at a local level by new area health authorities. And they and the local, and local governments authorities were required to establish joint consultative committees 
to advise on planning and operation of services of common concern and recommends to establish joint planning teams to integrate care, especially for older and disabled people. And in 1976, joint financial arrangements were introduced to assist cooperation, enabling NHS funds to be used on collaborative projects with local authority social services. But the collaboration was never fully effective because the funding was never adequate in the the financial crises of the 1970s. And generally, care for older and disabled people has never had high priority in government policymaking when it's competing with other demands, as it always is. So once again, there were good ideas for expansion and coordination of services, but they weren't fully implemented. And certainly the planned integration wasn't effective by the time Margaret Thatcher came to power in 1979. The shift from institutional to community care moved even faster under Thatcher's government in the 80s, along with cuts to public spending and a preference for private over public provision. Also, Margaret Thatcher believed that families were neglecting their responsibilities to older and disabled people and should be pressured to care for them. Pressure that few, in fact, needed. But she bought into that conventional view. A succession of official documents in the 1980s emphasised the need to improve services for older and disabled people and promoted the idea of um, sorry, uh, promoting the idea of care and improved services in the community for, for the growing populations of older and disabled people. Because awareness was growing particularly in the 1980s of the speed at which the population was ageing. In 1988, a report by Sir Roy Griffiths, who was appointed to reform the NHS, commented that Community care is a poor relation. Everyone's distant relative, but nobody's baby. This is also too true, but nothing improved. Rather, entitlement to care was eroded, and poor coordination of health and social care continued as local authority budgets were cut, and services were increasingly targeted on the most severely disabled and disadvantaged. And local authorities are increasingly under pressure to outsource care services to voluntary or increasingly sorry, to, to private providers offering services at the lowest cost And there was increasing pressure through the 1980s and 90s on users to pay as costs rose and the quality of many services declined. Then shortly before his election in 1997, Tony Blair proclaimed, I don't want our children brought up in a country where the only way pensioners can get long-term care is by sending their home. And things got a little bit better under new Labour with increased spending on health and social services. 
but it never matched the need or matched up to the succession of further expert recommendations for improvement that were produced between 1997 and 2010. A Royal Commission was quickly established by the new Labour government and in 1999 it recommended that all long-term personal care should be free. This was adopted in newly devolved Scotland but not in England and Wales. The government repeatedly expressed intentions of wholesale reform to the system, but there was little action until as late as 2008. The Department of Health announced that it would pilot models for new integrated care organisations. The government put £225 million into support for unpaid carers, mostly fam family members, recognising their importance in replacing inadequate public services. Then a green paper was published in 2009 proposing a national care service emphasising prevention, the need for equal and high standards across the country and integration of health and social care services targeted at individual needs and also recommended funding for all users, replacing the current system whereby users of services with savings of just £23,000, including the value of their house, had to pay for all social services, which created major difficulties for increasing numbers of people. These proposals were put out for consultation, which was labelled the big care debate, a ministerial group on integration of health and social care services was created and legislation was promised, but not until after the election that was due in 2010. At the same time, a House of Lords committee was investigating social care. It was told by the Department of Health in 2009 that improvement and integration of services needed to progress quickly but it was really very, very complicated, especially concerning sources of funding. And of course, 2009 was the middle of the financial crisis, so there were real financial problems. The 2009 Green Paper rejected free tax-funded social care to match health care, which many people recommended, but it re <coughs> rejected it as unsustainable that was widely supported by experts, including the King's Fund, who know a great deal about the health services. They've supported it as the most cost-effective way forward. Instead, the Green Paper floated various forms of insurance to cover um, social care, but these are unpopular. They also recommended raising the capital threshold for free care, but they made no decisive proposals. In fact, the method of funding a reformed integrated system was and is a political choice which successive governments have evaded. Without much hope, the House of Lords Committee in its 2009 report wished the political parties would come together, as they put it, to map out a programme of sustainable reform 
of social care. Their report, based on extensive evidence from across the country, was highly critical of the inadequacies of the existing service and resulting stresses on older and disabled people and their carers. They said that thorough reform and integration was needed and should be manageable despite prob probable increased future demands. And they went into detail about what should be done, but I haven't time to go into that. They deplored the prevailing pessimism about the impact of population aging, which certainly was prevailing at the time, and popular rep representations of older people as burdens. They believed that these representations of the high cost of population aging was holding back reform unnecessarily. And they pointed out that longer life expectancy didn't necessarily mean longer years of sickness. In reality, more people remaining fit and healthy to later ages. But prevention and public health measures, they argued, were necessary to support this tendency to be fitter for longer. For example, they praised the government's ban on smoking in public places, but more was needed. But they believe that pervading the whole system of social care is a persistent ageism, both overt and covered, and this was a major reason why there was, had been so little improvement. So they supported many of the proposals in the 2009 Green Paper, but concluded that the problems and the options for solving funding reform have long been known and prime opportunities to initiate reform have been squandered. The failure to grasp this nettle is sadly indicative of the low priority given to social care by successive administrations, and this must not continue. But it did continue. Little changed before the 2010 election, and the failures continued after Labour lost the election and the coalition took over. The coalition quickly published a document, a vision for social care, and appointed yet another commission under Andrew Dilnot on funding of care and support. This report in 2011 proposing a lifetime cap of £35,000 on individual liability for care costs, since existing means testing was excluding too many people from adequate care. This was partly accepted in the 2014 Care Act, but the cap was set at £72,000, £118,000 for residential care. This was due to be implemented in April 2016 until the present Conservative government delayed it to April 2020, so we await the outcome. Meanwhile, since 2010, austerity policies have severely cut local authority budgets and the NHS has persistent funding shortfalls. There's still no general in integration of health and social care though there are some local experiments. There's a great deal of evidence of the deterioration of community care 
and care in some, they're not all, residential homes, and of older people trapped in hospitals because there's no suitable care elsewhere. So our care system has never been perfect, but at a time when more people are living longer than ever before, it seems to be reaching a low point, some say on the brink of collapse. But as a final and perhaps less depressing point, I want to discuss how throughout time it's important to think of older people as not only recipients of care, as burdens on other people, since they've often also been and are caregivers, probably more now than ever. A survey by Age UK discovered that one in seven people aged over 80 in Britain provided unpaid care, most often for a husband, wife, partner or, or disabled adult child. Age UK say the numbers have shot up in recent years because of the decline in local services. And older people caring for others, old and young, is nothing new, including grandmothers looking after grandchildren, whether they, sh whether they share a home or live nearby. <clears throat> this has a, a long history. Also, older people looking after disabled adult children, who also now tend to live longer than in the past, when they were more vulnerable to infection. As I've already mentioned, not only are people on average living longer, they remain healthy and active later in life, and so can do more for others for longer. A survey by the, what was then the Women's Royal Voluntary Service, and now is the Royal Voluntary Service, in 2011 revealed that people over 65 are a high proportion of volunteers, both formally through voluntary organisations about 30% of over 60s volunteer regularly and informally by helping relatives, friends and neighbours. In 2011, 65% of people over 65 regularly helped elderly neighbours and were the most likely age group to do so. 30% helped neighbours aged under 65. 49% looked after young children, including grandchildren sometimes retiring from paid work themselves to do so. And support of this kind type is growing because of the growing costs of childcare and the deterioration of support services. So the value of older people's formal volunteering has been estimated at 10 billion a year saved to public social services. That of informal social care at 34 billion a year. And at the same time, more older people are staying longer in the workforce, paying taxes and contributing to the economy. So on balance, older people are putting more into the economy still than they take out, despite a lot of the negative talk about the effect of society ageing. Also, far from lavishing their money on their own pleasures, as much rhetoric about intergenerational inequity would have it, 31% of grandparents save to help grandchildren buy a home, 16% in their 60s, one-third in their 70s give financial support to children and grandchildren. So older people have always made a significant contribution to their families and communities, and they still do. 
They care as well as being cared for. And the care that the more fortunate older people can give is urgently needed, as is much improved um, and integrated residential and community care for less fortunate older people. So to conclude, when the modern system of health and social care was introduced in 1948, a period of gradual improvement followed until the 1980s, but provision was never ideal and it faced persistent criticism for its inadequacy until today. These criticisms were ignored with remarkable persistency by governments of all persuasions who avoided decisive action, despite the issues and possible solutions being clearly spelled out time and again. This long-run failure is having a serious impact on the health service and on the viability of the residential and home care sectors. Just this week, an accountancy firm reported that more than 100 UK private care home operators collapsed in 2018, and over the past five years, a total of 400 have done so. And they warned that many patients will then have nowhere to go but hospitals. <clears throat> they say th these firms are buckling under the pressure of funding cuts, crippling debt, and rising costs. We have to suspect that discrimination against older and disabled people is part of the reason for the failure of governments to act. They continue not to have a high priority for government action. And frail people can't launch the protests that ameliorated other forms of discrimination. The long history of government promises of change but continued underfunding and failure to act is profoundly worrying and recent government statements provide no reason to be optimistic for the future. It's all the more worrying when the, when the Continuous Mortality Institute, which calculates life expectancy for the pensions industry, has recently calculated that the growth in average life expectancy has been slowing since 2010. And in the past year, it fell by about six months for the first time in decades, which is out of line with other high-income countries, so not with the United States, where life expectancy has been declining for the last two years. But the timing of this slowing and then decline since 2010 suggests that austerity and the resulting decline in services has contributed to fewer people living longer, healthy lives. So I wish I could end on a more hopeful note, but I'm afraid not. Thank you for listening. So, do you want to come over here or stay over there? There's a pad here and a wobbly table. <laughs> so, we've got a good chunk of time for questions. Who, who would like to kick off? Any initial thoughts? While you're getting your thoughts together, let, let me just ask you something. Um, I mean, it's this point you ended on about 
the role of discrimination? Because, I mean, looked at from another sort of political point of view, it's often said that older people vote more than younger people and so on. So you might think there was an electoral incentive to actually do more for older people than some other groups. So how does one assess the different weight of those things? And, I mean, presumably older people are not discriminating against themselves. Well, I assume that um, many of the ones who actually vote are not the, the ones who are most in need of that kind of care. Um, but, I mean, I mean, obviously pensions have been protected, though, again, pensions have always been really quite low. They've never been, state pensions have never been enough to live on uh, since they were first introduced in 1908. So, despite, I don't know, the rhetoric about responding to aged voters, the reality in terms of the services is not actually very obvious. So... I think there's something to the... I mean, it's often said about the welfare state more generally that universal provision creates incentives that reinforce that provision, whereas means-tested and more selective provision yeah. tends to create a vicious cycle downwards. And yeah. you can see that with the health service in Britain versus the health service in yeah. the United States. Yeah, means I mean, is there something to that, maybe? It's, it's a sort of path-dependent process that's reinforcing itself and... Uh, that's that. I think so. I think that is true. That that it's got stuck in that sort of mold long ago, and it's true that means-tested services, a they're costly because means testing is quite cost money because people's incomes have to be looked at. But always, at least twenty percent of eligible people don't apply for means-tested benefits, and that's true internationally. It just doesn't work. Whereas universal benefits are cheaper because they're just given to everybody. Well, people can be taxed on them. And um, everybody qualifies. But... Just, just before you do, just say who you are and so on. Just for the... I went to this institution, Robert, and um, how does... Um, How does the social care in England compare to the major other industries? I haven't companies? seen any good comparative surveys. That's, that's why I didn't say anything about it. I just, I, mean, I really just haven't. Um, I mean, certainly our, our pensions are worse than any other country. <laughs> um, so uh, my inclination would be to think that services are not very good, but I haven't seen really adequate comparative studies. Yep, okay, just wait for the microphone this time and also just if you don't mind saying who you are because we have our podcast audience who would be delighted to know. Hi, I'm, I'm Susan and I, I, I'm American but I live over here. And one of the things that I've been curious about for a number of years is the numbers of people. I can tell from questions people ask me, you know, after I had major surgery, after I lost half my vision, there's still an assumption out there that all these services and all these things are available. And so people are, you know, like 90% of people will say, well, are you getting help? Who's helping? Did it? And, and the assumption, why doesn't the public seem to know that there's nothing out there? And it's, it's, well, it's because they don't know, I think. That that's why it carries on. But it's true, I think, until people encounter 
poor services. They just don't realise just how inadequate they are. It's not. Some people do know, and it is publicised in some newspapers. But really, compared with other social problems, it gets remarkably little coverage. It's quite, it's quite striking. Um, but again, you're, you're right, you'd expect people to tell their friends, but perhaps they just don't. They, perhaps they feel ashamed or feel it's just something that's happening to them and not more general. I really don't know, and I haven't seen any attempt to find out. But I think compared with other social problems, it does get less publicity. And you notice publicity if you're interested in it, or you notice surveys, for example. But most people, I think, don't. Yep. Uh, so this gentleman. Hi. Uh, uh, thank you for the excellent lecture. I'm Maheshwa from India and originally now based at UCL, University College London. So my question is, like, I come from India uh, and the values uh, in India and UK are very similar related to old people and how treatment should be made for, uh, to elderlies. Uh, but I listened to your excellent speech and uh, you kept telling me about uh, a chronological history of how evolution has happened how sensitivities are growing gradually, but there is not sufficiently uh, enough um, sensitivity, obviously. But my question is like, what do you think? In all societies, everywhere around the world, the elderly people are actually the people who hold all affluence, have money, and they hold positions as well, because they have earned it all their life. Younger people, in fact, often struggle. Uh, but what makes this uh, appealing position wherein the governments in place are not taking care of the elderly? Because these are the people who have contributed all their life to the countries and the cultures and the economy and everything else. But why is this apathy? Uh, why is this growing again? Because as far as I see uh, you, United Kingdom, I'm very new to United Kingdom, obviously, but at the same time, I observe that there, are, there, are, there is a huge growing population. And this growing population is becoming a matter of great concern. Uh, I come from a background of global health, so I see it as a problem as such, because we just recently got published a paper on global aging in The Lancet very recently, like just three days ago. And that talks about how global aging is a major problem. So how do you, how, what do you think is the major reason why this apathy is growing? And why is government, governments around the world and government in particular in the UK is apathetic towards the conditions of elderly, especially? Um, you, said, you said that there are lots of very well-off older people, and it's true. There are, there are also a lot of very poor older people. And the division between rich and the inequality within the generations is certainly as great as that between the generations. And there has been a certain rhetoric in recent years about how all old people have got these incredibly expensive houses and wonderful pensions, and they spend their time on cruises around the world, which may be true of a minority, but there's a, a very large number of older people in really quite severe poverty. Um, I mean, I, I, 
as I said towards the end, I think the trouble is that frail older people and disabled people, really frail people, are not able to protest about issues in the way that other groups are. So they do tend to get sidelined because they don't make enough noise on their own behalf. And as, on the whole, things change mainly when the people who are actually the victims of particular problems make a big fuss about it, whether they're women or black people or whatever group. So I think particularly older people, because you know, they're, uh, and who are experiencing poor care, are the people who just physically are least able to make a fuss about it. And there has been more organisation of older people speaking up for themselves since the 1990s. But mainly that seems to have been people who are either still in work or feel able to work, arguing against discrimination in the workforce, of which there's quite a lot, but not so much about social care, that the people who need social care are the least able to speak up about it, I, I suspect. And that's not true, not only here, but everywhere else, of course. Yes. Thank you. Um, my name's Corinna Rafferty. I work in the asset management industry. And I'm really interested in your views to what extent a debate around medical research funding and redirecting medical research is required or indeed happening uh, to the effect that, you know, we focus more on quality of life rather than extension of life mm. you know, that, you know, cancer can often be treated uh, cardiology has, has made the progress mm. that people live longer but then they might develop dementia increasingly which of course puts an even greater strain yeah. on the care system so do you, do you see that debate happening? Well there certainly has been research certainly getting in around the early 2000s showing that conditions that affect older people are less likely to be researched into, or when it's something that affects all age groups, like various kinds of cancer, then the research will focus on younger and middle-aged people and not on older people. And there certainly is quite a lot of discrimination. For example, um, screening for breast cancer stops when you're in... I can't remember whether it's maybe in 70 and it's gone up to 75. But women are more likely to suffer from breast cancer above that age. But screening comes to an end. There's been, due to the cuts in the National Health Service or its shortage of funds, there have been cuts to various sorts of non-urgent operations like hip replacements, knee replacements, cataracts, which affect, affect older people. And that does seem to, I mean, it has been commented on over the years, but it doesn't, it seems to be getting worse rather than better. But the very thing, because, you know, if, you, if you've got arthritic hips and knees, then it really impedes you getting around, looking after yourself and being helpful to other people. And if people are having to wait, as they often are, 18 months, two years for such operations, it's disadvantaged them very badly. So it's, um, it seems to be a situation that is getting worse, not better, unfortunately. <laughs> it's, a dis it's a pretty dismal story. <clears throat> Thank you. 
My name's Jake Beach, and I work at the King's Fund, at least in my day job, uh, which you mentioned very kindly in your talk. Um, well, very important. Well, thank you. Uh, basically, I'm going to ask what I think is the obvious question. Uh, we're going round the houses again with another green paper. Uh, this one's been delayed several times since 2017 and it's been recently delayed again. Um, basically, the obvious question is, of course, is this time any different? Do you think this green paper will have an impact that Dilnot didn't, for example, or the previous green paper didn't? Uh, and has anything changed and is it likely to change in the near future? Well, it is hard to be optimistic, isn't it? Because I mean, we don't know what that... <laughs> I told we'd have a whole evening without mentioning Brexit, but one doesn't know what effect that will have. And really the history of these you know, perfectly good proposals coming out and then nothing happening or very little happening is so persistent since 1948 that it's very hard to see it turning around now when austerity still rules, whatever Theresa May may say about it disappearing. There's no actual sign of it. And to improve services, there'd have to be a, a significant increase in taxation. There's no other, other way to do it. Or, you know, something useful like at last revising uh, council tax um, valuations, which hasn't been changed since 1993. I mean, there are ways in which money could be raised. But one somehow, you know, I don't see any, I don't feel much hope that it will happen, but... Uh, be nice to be wrong. <laughs> Hi, it's John, a visitor to LSE. Um, I'm, I'm just thinking it, it's hard to know how to express it, but there seems to be some problem in relation to the way capitalism works to me. And because when I think about the, the Dillnot report, that talked about paying for care and the idea of capping the amount of care that you'd have to pay over your life. It seemed to me that was so that people would be able to buy insurance policies to pay for care so that then they wouldn't have to sell their assets if they had them, like their home or whatever. But yeah, I'm, that but, was the idea. But so that's, that's looking at... Um, looking at it from a very particular sort of viewpoint, really, and it seemed to me that, that it didn't sound very efficient. I mean, it seemed to me that the main beneficiary would probably be financial institutions. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Well, that might that'd be a problem with the insurance system. I mean, the, the point of the cap was to cut the amount that people would have to pay over their lifetimes, because many of them were paying, in the end, a great deal more than £35,000. Uh, so I think that was the main thing that he had in mind. And he wasn't proposing abolishing the cap because he didn't think for a moment the government would buy that. But he hoped that you know, by proposing a, you know, a moderate cap that might possibly get through, but of course it didn't. So I think I, I'm not... I, I mean, insurance has been proposed, as it was in the 2009 Green Paper, and not taken forward. But it always had, there's always been so much criticism of it. It's been very unpopular, um, partly for the kind of reasons you suggest, and it's not terribly efficient. Um, 
So I don't, I, yeah, I don't really think I've got very much else to say, but I think I can understand why Dilnot suggested that cap, but it didn't happen. It, I mean, it would have been better than the much higher cost people were already paying. Yeah, but maybe the free cap would, would be better and more efficient. Well, yes, well, that's what the King's Fund and everybody else keeps saying. <laughs> but nobody listens. Yes, it would be. This gentleman at the back. Thank you. I'm, I'm Andrew, my lawyer. Um, I think to, to caricature what you said, I think you said we're not spending enough money on it and the way to fix it is more money. And I wondered what the experience was in Scotland where social care is now essentially free to the point of use, like, like health care is. is. Is that working in the way that it's not working in the rest of the UK? As far as I know, the services are still good. People do actually have to pay part of the residential. They pay those things called hotel costs, residential care. It's services at home that are completely free. And what I read about the browser suggests that they do work pretty efficiently. But I don't think integration with health care is any better. It is simply that social care is free, and that makes know life easier for more people but the integration problem and I suspect also the inequality of services in different places it is probably is still a problem oh it's not it's not a solution no it just does make life easier. and it just does get rid of that the burden of of course and of course of the, the gets rid of the inefficiencies of means testing uh, for, but just for social care, but a lot of other problems remain. Yeah, go ahead. Just wait for the thing, and then just yeah, it's absolutely fine. Yeah, no, just wait for the thing though, so we can. Um, me again. Um, I was basically going to ask a question. So, when the government kind of pushes back on on kind of social care reform. Um, two things are often sort of put out as, as reasons why we don't necessarily either need to worry about it or it's not an issue. Um, one of them is um, people in other countries manage very well. Families take care of their uh, loved ones in later life. Um, that will solve the problem. And if that doesn't do it, then there's the second pushback, which is, oh, technology will sort all of that out. There'll be social care robotics. Robots, uh, the yes. Internet of Things will make your house care for you uh, in the future. I was wondering what your take was on that. And, you know, looking at kind of, you know, the history of the 20th century, what kind of the long arc there sort of says about, you know, automation, innovation in those kind of areas, reducing the burden of care and whether it is plausible in the future. Because, I mean, you can probably tell from my scepticism, I'm not entirely convinced. Well, family care, as I've probably said, I mean, it, it does keep going, but at huge cost to many of the carers. I mean, it really is putting many people under huge stress. And very often, again, it is women, but they may also be working, they've got children to look after them. Um, though, of course, a, a good many of the family carers are themselves retired people. One effect of ageing is that many of the carers of people who are in their 80s and 90s are their children who are in their 60s and early 70s. So I mean, and that, that's been a, a, another change over time because of people living and being fit longer. But you know, the, the worst, I mean, the, as I've said, said several times, 
families to give good care need good support. And if they're not getting support, which they're not, or get less and less they are, um, it's very hard for them. And it, there's a lot of evidence of the stress it places on people. Um, as for robots, I, can't do. I, mean, I don't know enough about artificial intelligence to know what the reality is. Um, there's something really very depressing about the thought of being laughed, looked after by a robot as you, as you get older, a lonely older person. Um, all you've got is some machine pretending to be a human being. It's not. Um, in the past, I'm not sure how, how much how technology must have made. And clearly, things like having alarms and people being able to communicate more, even having telephones, <laughs> makes life easier. And um, computers and just being able to communicate more with other people is, has, I think, has been a real advantage to many people. Um, and no doubt AI can do something, but like you, I'm deeply sceptical about it. <laughs> so, anybody else who wants to chip in? Yep. This lady at the back. Hello, Juliana. Um, I'm a student in the Master's in Social Policy. Um, I'm also a former civil servant in the Ministry of Social Development in Brazil. So, um, like comparing um, both situations, like back in Brazil and here, um, I don't know if, not just an insight, and I don't know if it's a proper question, but um, also related to the fact that why it's not a problem as, uh, say, public uh, focused or highlighted as other problems, for example, um, education and uh, children care, if it's not related to the, um, I'd say the concept of productivity as well. So uh, talking about children care and talk about education, it's um, always related to um, the potential productivity of those uh, future citizens and also connected to, um, I would say releasing women to work. And if it's not, it, uh, the social care can, I don't know, turn to this, I would say, feminist as well agenda that as women are the main carers as well, if they are going to face as well in the future, another um, barrier for their I don't know, uh, careers as well. Just my question. Yeah, well, that, that's certainly true. And I, I do think I mean, it's another aspect of the discrimination against older people that education and younger people are the kind of the hopes of the future, so it's important. Whereas older people are kind of past it, they've had it, um, even though more and more of them are actually in the workforce and are doing very extremely useful things in society as volunteering has become more and more important. But I do think that cast of mind that in the end older people... It's not really quite, it's not quite worth bothering. It's quite deeply embedded in the culture, and not only in British culture. Um, and I think, I really think it does underlie the, the way that care services are at the back of the queue whenever there are lots of changes to be, that need to be made. But, 
Uh, hi, uh, I'm Georgia. I'm from the NHS. Thank you for your talk. Um, I suppose what I took away from it is that you've highlighted cultural change and more money as some of the possible solutions. What would you say about the persistent workforce issues and how difficult it is to recruit people to caring roles? Well, it's partly because they're so low paid and so badly treated. And the number of carers are actually earning less than the minimum wage because they're not paid for traveling, for example, um, particularly in country areas where they might do quite a lot of traveling. But even in towns, it takes a bit of time to get from one part of London to another. So, you know, that's, I mean, they just, I mean, there are more victims of the endless cuts, but also of the low status of the whole issue of caring. So, so many of them are, are low paid, but above all, they're so underpaid that it's only attractive to people who can't get anything else. And I don't see any sign of that. It's getting worse, if anything, rather than better. It's one more depressing feature of the whole story. <laughs> So, have we got anybody else? Uh, I think if everybody's had their go, I think I should... Uh, first of all, I should thank you all for your questions, because I think there were some very interesting oh, yeah. questions. There are also yeah. some very well-informed questions. Yes. Um, but I do want to sp uh, thank our speaker, too. I mean, I think you, you sort of explored at the beginning interesting both generational changes and the absence of generational changes and things that are thought to have changed that hadn't. Um, and then you, you went on in the second half to discuss, you know, the, the emergence of this separation between healthcare and social care after the Second World War, and, and both the gradual improvement that's taken place since then and also the persistent failure. Um, and I think there's, a, there's clearly a challenge that's set out from what you've said that's a matter of, of high political importance. So thank you, Professor Thane, for an excellent talk. Can you join me in thanking our speaker, Professor Thane? <laughs>